Hello and welcome once again. It is the Album Nerds Podcast. You are here with Dude and Andy. Andy, how you doing, my friend? What's up? What's up, buddy? Welcome to the show, everybody. I just created that uh, was up thing if anyone wants to use it. <laughs> yeah, there could be a few beer companies out there that might be interested. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll look into that. So, uh, you been listening to any good music lately, man? Or? Yeah, tons of music. Some good, some bad. Uh, but what we've been doing, what I've been doing at least the last couple of weeks is listening to some really good music from a really long time ago. How about you? Yeah, I've been doing a little bit of that myself, actually. Yeah, I think that brings us around, though, to our topic today, doesn't it? <laughs> Eventually, it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is what is this topic you mentioned? We've we've come back around, folks. Once again, it's an essential funk and essential new wave of British heavy metal show. Basically, what that means is Andy and I have decided to delve in dig deep into some musical genre type things, groupings of bands, and dig in, get to know it a little bit better, and hopefully find some cool albums in the process, discover some bands we weren't aware of, and pass on the savings to you. My topic is the new wave of British heavy metal, which covers bands, uh, British metal bands. Obviously, there was a group of them they played the same club circuit in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, some of those luminaries include Iron Maiden, Angel Witch, we've talked about on the show, Def Leppard is in that bucket, and uh, we've got another one to talk about this week. Andy was talking about funk. What's going on with the funk, sir? Yeah, we've been slowly working our way through George Clinton and the uh, P-Funk gang that he... Uh Help proliferate in the uh, 70s. So we got another offering from that group, which was very prolific between like 1973 and 1980. So it's going to be fun to dig into those. You ready, man? I would say I'm always ready, but I'm always slow to hit the right buttons and stuff. So (laughs) I'm loosely ready. Let's do this thing. Oh yeah, it's my excuse to do that voice that I love doing. <laughs> I don't know, Andy, if I told you this, but back in the day, in the probably late '90s, early 2000s, me and my buddies used to, when we we're out on a weekend, maybe going to see bands or whatever. If it was yeah. a long drive, we would do a game where any road signs we saw, each of us would take turns doing it rock and roll style. So, <laughs> so it'd be like you know, right turn only. And we would take turns doing that. By the time we got to our destination, none of us could talk. So <laughs> it was fun. That sounds awesome. Yeah, good times. I'm, uh, there were no girls in the car. Surprise, surprise. Anyway, <laughs> so I am going to talk about a band that I had heard of, but I had not ever really listened to. Uh, the band is called Diamond Head. And the album is called Lightning to the Nations. So for a little background, Diamond Head are an English heavy metal band formed in 1976 in Sturbridge, England. The band is recognized as one of the leading members of the new wave of British heavy metal movement and acknowledged by many a thrash metal band such as Metallica, Megadeth as an important early influence. 
Members were Sean Harris, Brian, he was the vocalist, uh, Brian Tatler, awesome guitarist, hint, hint, you know where this is going to go, Colin Kimberly on bass, Duncan Scott on drums. Uh, In the early days, they played very few cover songs. They were big, big writers of their own tunes. They had like 100 songs before they recorded their first album, which I think is pretty freaking impressive. They uh, recorded a lot of self-financed demo tapes, toured a little bit based on those demos with ACDC and Iron Maiden. Record companies had some interest, but when it came down to it, their management seemed to have kind of blown it, and they never got, they didn't get signed to a major record label while Iron Maiden and their contemporaries were signing uh, deals. So they're kind of not as well known as some of the other bands we've talked about. Uh, Andy, what what did you think of Diamond Head? Did you know anything about these guys? Were you familiar with them at all? Yeah, I'd never heard of them before, man. Um, I recognize a few of these tracks from covers that I heard from other bands, uh-huh. but uh, I had heard that one of the band members' mother was in charge. Yeah, of their, like uh, marketing and distribution and stuff. Is yeah, that, yeah, is that true. I read that too. That she was like a co-manager with a guy that owned a box factory or something. <laughs> right, that's how they like she was uh, sleeves or something. I think maybe some of them worked at the box factory, and I don't know. It seems like they just didn't have the best management, but who knows? I, I wasn't. Yeah, there. it's too bad because they're, they're pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool band. So the album we're talking about today is called Lightning to the Nations. Let's listen to a song called Am I Evil to kick this thing off. Now, that song's pretty cool. I've heard it before, but I heard the Metallica cover of it first years ago. I would like to focus on all the guitar work, but there's not enough time in this show, folks. So we're going to have to talk about the song itself. It was immediately popular among metal circles in the UK around the time of its release, but it only really got to be known once Metallica covered it as a B-side on their Creeping Death single in 1984. And that kind of got other people familiar with with uh, Diamond Head and Am I Evil. And it the song was definitely, it was influenced by a Black Sabbath song called Symptom of the Universe. Interesting stuff, huh? So this yeah. album was recorded in uh, 1979, released in 1980 on a little record label called Happy Face. It was a plain white sleeve originally. They didn't have like a real printing situation apparently. So it was very, very kind of of out-of-the-back-of-a-van type of distribution, sending it to record uh, reviewers and stuff. So it didn't really, without the right representation, I I don't think it got as much exposure as it may have. So this album is considered super, 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 super important in the new wave of British heavy metal and in the development of thrash metal and metal in general that uh, continue to build especially in the united states in the early 80s 
What did you think of this? I mean, you you said you hadn't heard of the band, so I assume you hadn't listened to the album before. What were your thoughts as you were first experiencing Diamond Head? Uh, dude, I was really impressed, man. I thought this was great. For a debut record, Like, yeah. they sound really good. They play great together. The guitar playing is just ridiculous. The riffs are just... Yeah. There's so many riffs on this record. That's the important part. That's what what their building block was in the in the thrash scene in particular is that change of pace. The they go from stuff to then like a bass fill, then a drum fill, then they'd slow the tempo down and speed it back up, like, but not in a sloppy way, right? Yeah, I mean, did yeah. you hear that too? No, it was super clean. They're really tight, and they can they can do like those short thrashy songs like that or mm-hmm. are they there's a couple tracks on here like nine minutes long they sound great though they're really interesting yeah um you can hear a lot of like zeppelin and, and black Sabbath, yes. like you mentioned but um not it's not like a ripoff it sounds pretty no. original yeah mm. it definitely had its own flavor here i mean when i hear this and maybe it's because i heard like metallica on their garage days eps and then the full that uh garage ink album that came out in 98 i think if you count up like on the two discs there's four covers by diamond Diamond and all four of them are from this record uh (laughs) you know if you look at the liner notes of that of that garage ink album by metallica and i bought it in 98 and i leafed through it but there's mentions of nwabam in there there's talk about lars and how he had all these uh subscriptions to UK record label stuff. So he gets sent this, all these Nwabam albums. And (laughs) so it's just a a music fan like Lars. He was a huge music collector then helped the, the, his influences became metallic part of Metallica's influences and stuff. And it's pretty freaking cool how that works. I love that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can hear a lot of the stuff Metallica was doing later in the eighties on this record so definitely if you're a metallica fan and you haven't heard this guarantee you'll like it (laughs) well there's a lot of good songs on here um the prince is great it's electric which metallica has covered sweet and innocence cool the nine and a half minute song you mentioned sucking my love (laughs) is is an ode to fellatio apparently and oh that's what it's about yeah and you know in my opinion, the lyrics are kind of silly on that, but the music on that song is intense. It's yeah. amazing. So, you know, you get you get a little bit of uh, sour with the sweet, but their musicianship is just unparalleled. Why don't we listen to another song? Sound cool? Let's. All right, this one's called Helpless, also covered by Metallica. went for a guitar the music part there except for the yeah yeah just to get some kind of sense for what they were doing if we were to boil it down to the things that we like 
about this album. Uh, I'm going to say I like the awesome guitar riffs. I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I think we've said that already. Yeah, I would second that strongly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just can't convey enough how much of a, a building block, a Lego base, whatever, to so much of what I love about metal music. And it was so fun to listen to it and know that this is some of the early stuff, you know, the, the musically diverse, the songs have personality, even if they were all instrumentals, they'd still have personality, but the, the vocals are great. I mean, they're definitely very Robert planty and fine to listen to the tempo changes, the speed up, the drum fills, the slow down, the bass leads, just a blueprint for things to come. And I love all that stuff about this record. I was, uh, it was totally worth the purchase for sure. Yeah, man, I would second everything you said. Man, for a debut record, it's incredible how great they play together. With um, no no fancy studio. It was on right. their own dime. No per- major production yeah. help or anything. I mean, that's, in- that's really impressive. All <laughs> right, so Andy, what don't we like? Let's talk about that. So I think the lyrics are a little, they're not the strongest yeah. part, you know? It's hard to, I mean, I, I really don't want to rip on this at all, but in the production and distribution, screwed them. I mean, I, I think this could have been this could have been something, but, you know, uh, it became an influence for really important bands in the future, so it did become something just not in a way that gave the band itself great, great success. Yeah, it's too bad for them and their bank accounts that they didn't get this out there a little bit earlier. Yeah. But, uh they, yeah, they, some of the lyrics are, are a little cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, like sucking my love there is, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> not much on nuance. But uh, my only complaint would be at the, the low end, the bass and drums are a little bit hard to hear. Yeah. At least on the, when I was the MP3s I was listening to. Um, it's definitely guitar and vocal forward in the mix. But yes. yeah, other than that, man, it's pretty nitpicky. It's a really impressive record that. Uh, I wish I had heard, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, me too. I mean, I kind of feel like a dink for having that Metallica record, listening to it so many times and be like, oh, those songs are cool, and never even making the effort to go find Diamond Head. I, I just saw the name. I'm like, oh, that must be some old metal band. And back then, I was probably, you know, late 20s or something and forward-looking. Like, what's next right. instead of where did this come from and really digging in? I'm so glad... Got the opportunity. So basically, all in all, how is this essential? How is this essential to the new wave of British heavy metal? It was a building block for so much to come. Great record. They were part of that movement and a huge influencer on bands at the time and bands today. One thing I found that I thought was interesting was the big four. There was a big four series of concerts a few years ago. It was Anthrax, Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, the big four thrash bands. Do you remember mm-hmm. that, Andy? It's no. It's like 2011. Well, they toured all they, over. They all toured together? Yeah, they toured together and they made some stops. And one yeah. of them was in the UK and I found this little clip right before they, they were all going to play together at the end of the show. All the bands were going to play together and they were going to play Am I Evil. They're playing Am I Evil together with like a thousand guitarists. And <laughs> so Brian Tatler from Diamond Head joined them, the guitarists. So this is what Lars had to say. Can I just say one thing, okay? You see that guy over there, Brian? See that guy? 
He's the guy that wrote the song we're just about to play, okay? So, if it wasn't for Brian Tepper, there's a pretty good fucking chance that none of us would be here tonight, alright? So we can fucking give it up for Brian Tepper one more time. That says a lot that, uh, yeah. you know, how much that this band meant to these thrash bands. So anyway, that's my preacher time, my soapbox. Diamond Head, Lightning to the Nations, or the White Album, as it can be found. You can find it on Amazon. Please go out and buy it. It's totally worth it. It's a piece of history. It's got really good packaging, double disc with bonus tracks on disc two. So I really, I really implore you. You too, Andy. Go buy the damn thing. Word up, man. Definitely a great record and something that deserves to be recognized as being as influential as it has been. So, good pick, man. Thanks, dude. I, I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed it. I really wanted yeah. to pick something impressive this time. Cause, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we still can be friends if I don't like your pick. But I wanted to, okay. I wanted to bring the big guns. All right. So. Well, you did good. You did good. You did All right, good. man. Time to get funky. Oh, yeah. Put some of that funk on me, baby. Oh, yeah. That's right. Now, most of you don't know this out there, but because uh, Andy's standing still when we're doing this show, but whenever he walks, that music just plays, yo. <laughs> just exudes from me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, on this edition of Essential Funk, we're going to be uh, kind of bringing a chapter to a close here. On the last episode, we talked about uh, Bootsy Collins and his uh, classic record, Ah, the name's Bootsy, baby. Wow, you've really gotten good at that. Dude, uh, my funk. It's my funk. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Bootsy was a band member of George Clinton, um, uh, the P-Funk gang there. And uh, today on the show, we're going to feature another offshoot of uh, what George Clinton was doing back in the 70s there, a group called Parlette, and their 1979 record, Invasion of the Booty Snatchers. So Parlette is a spinoff of Parliament. They're part of a group of bands that Clinton spent off kind of later in the 70s, including another f- female-led group named the Brides of Funkenstein, as well as a band we mentioned last time on the show, uh, f- the Horny Horns. They were uh, often played with uh, with Bootsy Collins. Yeah, so the, the Parlettes, or originally called the Parlettes, as a takeoff of Parliaments, as being kind of the, the female complement to that group. This is a group of some of the, the backup singers that would sing with Parliament. Um, it's always three women, though the, the lineup changes a little bit over the course of the three records they put out for between uh, 1978 and 1980. Uh, George Clinton got the group together and produced all of their records. Had you heard of the Parlettes, my friend? No. Absolutely not. And when I first saw it, I'm like, is that Parlay or Parlette? But Parlette probably makes more sense. The thing I thought was funny when you talked about, what was it, the Funkin'? 
The Brides of Funkenstein. Yeah, so you say Brides of Funkenstein, and I would say Brides of Funkenstein, and it got me thinking about <laughs> Frankenstein and Frankenstein from right, right. <laughs> from Young Frankenstein, uh, young I mean, Frank- or Frankenstein, but right. yeah. And you know, there's a similar tongue in cheek to both of the mo- you know, the Frankenstein and the Funkenstein, Funkenstein. But yeah, I had no clue. I mean, I thought I knew funk music and I had never heard of them. I'm amazed by the number of offshoots and side projects that come from this Parliament Funkadelic collective. Yeah, George was just prolific in this period, man. He was just putting out dozens of records a year. Yeah, so I knew nothing about it, knew nothing about the album uh, that has on the cover Aliens Grabbing Ladies Booties. So why don't you (laughs) fill me in? (laughs) Tell me more about this record. All right, well, released in 1979, this was their second studio record. Features the three backup singers from Parliament, Jeanette Washington, Shirley Hayden, and Janice Evans, the main vocalists. As you mentioned there, the album cover is pretty epic. It has a kind of a cartoon with uh, some aliens grabbing women's booties. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Let's jump in and play... A cut from the record. This is called Riding High. Yeah, as you can hear there, there's a pretty big disco influence on this track. We're getting kind of towards the end of the 70s here, and then that disco sound is starting to creep in. So tracks like that, um, and a couple others on the record, really do have like that strong dance disco beat going on. It's interesting to hear that kind of mixed with the funk. I enjoyed that. There's a really beautiful kind of R&B ballad right in the middle of the record called Don't Ever Stop, Loving Me and Needing Me. Um, it's really the only time you hear... Any of the individual women singing on their own. As throughout most of the record, they're really just singing as a group, which I don't know, it kinda of has mixed I have kind of mixed feelings on, on how well that works in terms of personality on the record. But you still have some of the humor you'd expect from a parliament record. Um, there's some goofy moments on here and you can tell they're not taking this entirely seriously as they as they tended to do back then. What did you think about this record, man? Um yeah, I not having any familiarity with it, I wasn't sure what to expect, and I was a little surprised by the less funky vibe. Um, the disco sort of, I, I don't know. It, there's just so much disco-iness to it and so much kind of, uh, I don't know, anonymity to it that it was a little tough for me to connect to. I listened to it a few times, and... And I wasn't getting a sense of who these ladies are as parlay, parlette, as opposed to um, Parliament and, you know, the the funky background music and the tight sounding band and the good musicianship and all that stuff. I, I was a little confused as to who I was supposed to be listening to, because like you said, it was a group of ladies singing together most of the time. I thought it was, you know... I was glad to have heard it because it's always fun to hear something you haven't heard before, especially when you think you know, and I obviously didn't. So it's it was cool to enter a new 
a new side road or chapter in the parliament world, but I was, I, it wasn't what I was expecting whatsoever. I thought it would be a more one lady front forward sort of person with a personality, kind of the MC style that we've seen in so many of these records. So just a different approach and, uh, it's cool. Cool to listen to. Yeah, it is a really different approach. Um, it's even kind of a back at the beginning. When I first started listening to it, like, who is really on this record? <laughs> but once I understood it was just background singers, it kind of made a little more sense. Yeah, let's play another another cut from the record here. This is the last track. Probably the goofiest number on here. It's called The Huff and Puff. Oh, man, I love that track. <laughs> it's so funny. I think it works a lot better when they have the uh, the kind of that call and response with the mouth vocal in there just to kind of offset the group of singers. It's too bad there wasn't more of that on the record. Let's talk about some of the things that we did like. Okay, let's. All right, so there were nice grooves. Band sounded really good. And it has a really approachable 70s good time sound to it, I guess. Might be a little more palatable for people who don't like the over-the-top funk that just comes and comes and comes like on a Parliament record where it's kind of yeah. unrelentingly funky. Yeah, I mean, uh, in, uh, on that on that track, who do we know who the male singer was? I'm just curious because uh, I would have liked to have heard one of the ladies and the other ladies interacting and had yeah. one of them be doing the huffing and puffing instead of bringing a fella into the mix, but that's just me. That's a good point, man. Like I said, I, I, I more you know, I would have liked to have gotten to know them better. No, but you make a good point though. On why don't the ladies interact more with each other and not so much as a group? That would have been more interesting. Yeah, well, who knows? Yeah, so that's a couple. That's one of the things we don't like as much. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about all that disco sound on there, man? Is that a bit off-putting? It's not pure funk, but it's, you know, you can hear, I mean, this stuff develops. I mean, as time goes on, the Parliament sound had to keep up with the times, and especially when you're showcasing lady singers as the as the leads, more danceable, more approachable. Yeah. So, you know, I get yeah. it. Makes it was sense. funky yeah. enough, you know, it was funky enough. But it was very disco-y and kind of would sound good like a, if you're having a 70s party, you could play this in the background and people would just be happy with it and not necessarily need to know what it is. You know what I mean? Right, right. I know what you mean. That could be a large part because they didn't really publicize these records very much. Um, only that, The first song we heard there, Right and High, was the only song that charted for them in their entire career. Mm. Um, and they only toured twice, so they really weren't out in the public eye very much. I wonder I wonder if it would have caught on a little bit more if mm-hmm. if they had put a little more effort into it. Kind of like we were talking about 
with Diamond had there, you know, publicity yeah. is so important, Rick, isn't the Getting these bands out there and really catching on. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, what what could they have accomplished as bringing funk to the forefront for ladies if if they had been given more opportunity to maybe open? I don't know. Maybe they did open for Parliament. Maybe they did open for Bootsy. I don't know. But like I said, it's it's. I don't want to be like some know it all music guy, but I've heard of a lot of stuff, and I have you know dug into a lot of stuff, and I never heard a whisper about these guys before these ladies before so um that's just well that's that's why we're here man yep. doing, this, uh, <laughs> doing this essential breakdown here for you bringing some of these lesser known records to you it's cool it's cool to get a woman's perspective on the genre man it wasn't something i'd heard much of either so mm-hmm. it was interesting and yeah i just wish they had a little of, bit more control over it and uh, it was more of their personalities coming through but it was cool yeah 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 all right man well, i think that wraps it up for our essential project this week once again that was the diamond head and their 1980 release the white album slash lightning to the nations and we had parlettes and their 1979 record invasion of the booty snatchers check them out Check them out. Yeah, two underappreciated, but mm-hmm. really good records to listen to. Oh, yeah. Next week on the show, we're going to be talking about two new release recommendations from modern day. Digging into those, telling you why we like them, telling why you might like them. Should be fun. Be sure and tune in for that. Oh, yeah. Always like the new stuff. So, my friends, I know that you listen to this program, and I know that you want to know more about the album nerds. You want to interact with the album nerds. You want to tell us what you like to listen to. We want to hear it. So why don't you follow us over on Twitter, Instagram, and symbol at album nerds. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio. And please visit us over at albumnerds.com. Tell us what your favorite albums are. Tell us what we should listen to. Give us some ideas for upcoming shows. We want to hear from you because we love you so much. So thank you once again for listening to the Album Nerds Podcast. We will catch you next time. Peace. See you next week. Keep those booties safe. Yes. The booty snatchers are coming.